Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jason, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. We have a whole year's worth of content to Mm -hmm. uh, really go back over and chat about. You know, it's a good time of year to reflect back on what we've done, what we've accomplished, and so we'll just take it from there. Sounds good. We definitely a lot of fascinating guests this year. Yeah, we really got lucky, I think, with Hibba Jamil and Rika Zatabchi being the first two guests out of the gate. I feel like uh, kind of the, uh, I was the new kid on the block, no street cred whatsoever, and I had these two amazing guests that said yes. Uh, to somebody, it took a chance on on somebody that didn't have a track record, you know, could have been a total joker. Uh, but, you know, they took a chance on me and and really the the episodes, I think, are two of the best of the entire bunch. Absolutely. Yeah. We have uh, some clips from these, uh, these interviews, including Hibba and Rika. So let's listen to Hibba's now. Painting is a physical act for me. So... Um... I paint standing up. Um, I like that movement. I like that gesture. I like the intensity. I started to paint in high school here. That's what I was introduced to painting. Um, In high school, I took an art class and uh, I got introduced to acrylic. And that's when I started to actually paint. In the beginning, there was a lot of like backlash. Uh, about why do you paint sexuality? Why are you, why can't you just paint at like, they start to kind of suggest what I should be painting. And I kept on telling them, I don't care what you think. (laughs) And I kept on telling them that. And I'm like, and then, you know, at one point I, I wrote a post, I explained that, you know, this is pure art. This has nothing to do with religion, uh, customs or anything. This is, it's a pure form of art. I always said that art is the thing I love the most in this world, and I don't want anyone to tell me how to do it. I really want to do it the way I want to do it, the way I feel it. Great clip, Jason. Thank you. Yeah, nice job pulling out uh, sort of the essence of what that conversation was all about. Um, You know, what I gathered from Hibba is that she's a, uh, in many ways, a pioneer coming from a culture that I think probably has a stifling impact on sexuality and on women in general. Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, coming from Iraq. Uh, But she comes here to the United States and takes on her own perspective, which um, has some degree of sensuality in her painting within her art and does it fearlessly and probably gets, basically catches shit for it, you know, from people who are looking down upon that form of expression um, in her culture, or at least um, the Iraqi culture. And uh, it was just nice to hear her talking about how she dives into the painting physically and is so passionate about it. Totally, man. Yeah. And the art, if you look at the art itself, it's really good, like high quality and very expressive. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed getting to know her and seeing her stuff in the gallery and then talking to her after the show about her work and also talking to the people that were in the gallery there to buy art and to look at her work and, and get their feedback as well. It was a lot of fun. Well, kudos to her too for uh, having the guts to do it. 
and yeah. doing it on her terms. Yeah, it's she's she's a neat lady. So Rika Zabtopchi, um, is that how you say her name? Rika Zabtopchi. Zabtopchi. Yeah. yeah. Um, you got lucky with that one, I think. <laughs> lucky is right. I mean, the the timing of that one was perfect because she had just won an Oscar, and uh, I had been trying to schedule that interview for quite some time and did not know that she was going to win. I suspected that she had a really good shot of winning, uh, but because of her schedule and promoting the the uh, the film before the Oscars, we just couldn't connect beforehand. But she had this great documentary called Period, End of Sentence, mm-hmm. and, uh, and agreed to sit down with me after she won the Academy Award. And um, I went to her apartment in uh, in Southern California in Los Angeles and got to know her and hear how she became so successful in such a short period of time. I think she was 23 or 24 years old when I was talking to her. And, uh, and, and again, I think that it's one of those episodes that is, is going to be timeless uh, because she offers advice to young people. She offers advice to any creatives who are passionate about doing something in a creative space. And uh, with Rekha Zetabshi, what stands out the most about her interview is her passion for storytelling mm-hmm. and her focus on the importance of story, which she got from her mentors. Uh, Dave Junker was one of them. And she um, doesn't forget that important lesson, even though she has been thrust into basically stardom at this point. I mean, she's an Academy Award winner, but she's she's really passionate about telling stories and important stories too. Dave Junker like was my mentor and all of our mentor because he's the head of Film at Academy of the Arts, and he also started Orange County Film Festival. So um, I remember, like, always tell the story. That's one thing Dave always taught us. Always be character. Always tell the story. Like, always focus on those things. Because that's really, like, the heart of any film that you watch. You know, it was always like, hey, you have access to this really top-notch gear, but don't let that, like, drive you. Don't let that get in your way of really getting to the heart of characters and story. So what what were your thoughts when... You know, the second guest on our podcast uh, happens to be an Academy Award winner. What was going through your mind at that point so early in this process and on, on, on this journey? I was actually blown away. I couldn't believe it was happening that quick. Yeah. To be honest with you. And uh, really happy for you, too. I mean, I was involved in the early stages, but not that involved yet. Right. And so when I... It was kind of in a little bit of disbelief when you um, had said that you were going to interview this Oscar winner. You'd had her kind of in the in your crosshairs before that, though, right? Like, well, yeah, we months been, before, like you were trying to kind of get a hold of her. I had a connection to her uh-huh. through a friend. Okay, had been trying to reach her, and uh, but it just didn't seem to come together until the Sun, the Sundance Film Festival, right? And and that's when it all started. And that's when the the podcast started solidifying and gelling. And the infrastructure came into place, and and it all happened in a, in a pretty magical way. I hate to use that word magical, but I I feel it's kind of true. I mean, it 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 really feels like I'm just blessed to mm-hmm. have this podcast come together the way it has, and to have so many people willing to sit down with me, even though I'm not a Joe Rogan or a Mark Maron or a Tim Ferriss or whoever the you know your favorite podcaster is. I don't have that track record yet, but I just have a passion for what I do. And I think that when I talk to people about the podcast, 
I think that passion shows. And if you're excited about something, I think it's inevitable that other people are going to be excited about it too. Totally. Yeah. So I, I think that might be part of the uh, recipe for success here. Mm -hmm. I come away really feeling like these people are my friends. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm making a connection with them that really transcends the interview itself. And I learned something about them that um, I think is helpful to listeners in more than just a, a curious way. You know, like, oh, what's it like to win an Academy Award? I mean, these interviews go pretty deep into the creative process. Oh, yeah. And they, they go pretty deep into the biography of a creative and how they get to where they're at. And so I feel very honored to hear that story. And at the end of that process, at, at the end of the interview, and when I upload it to the web and it's out there for everybody to hear, I feel like I have a real strong connection to these people. And, um, and that's, that's pretty special to me. You know, another, speaking of special connections, uh, Roger and Michael Fisher, episodes uh, four and five, it was such a long interview, we, had to, we actually had to break it into two different episodes. Uh, but I, I did have a connection with them before the interview. You did, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I remember how that process came about. I was talking to you about music and you know, old bands that we both loved and listened to. And, and I remember you said, you know, Brian, Roger Fisher would be a cool interview. And uh, from, from heart. And I was like, you know what? I think I have a connection to them because my dad used to fly hard. Maybe I'll just see if they remember my dad. So I send an email to, to Roger Fisher's fan website. Mm -hmm. And within 20 minutes, I got a response back. Nice. And in, of course, I name dropped my dad in the email to him. And his response was, I love your dad. Let's make this happen. And so that interview really meant a lot to me because I got to learn about who my dad was to them. And anytime, you know, he, he passed away in 2003. Um, but when, when, when someone in your family passes away too soon and suddenly, uh, you, you tend to lose the, their life story because they weren't expecting to die. You weren't expecting them to die. Right. And so I thought that a lot of his life story kind of vanished as soon as he died. But talking to Michael and Roger really illuminated a lot about who my dad was to them in that context, you know, flying rock and roll stars all, all over the country. And um, it's just neat to be able to learn about your dad from people like that, from rock stars. <laughs> yeah. he, was, he was a bit of a rock star himself, your dad. Yeah. Well, I always thought of him as a rock star, but yeah, he, he technically was not a rock star. He was a, a pilot to the rock stars. But when you're a kid, you know, that's, that's pretty much a rock star. I just meant the charisma of your dad. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, de know? he definitely had the charisma of a rock star and, uh, he was, you know, that, that sort of fighter pilot swagger, you know, the Vietnam decorated war hero confidence and swagger, but also the sense of humor that you know, everybody appreciated. And I think that's what took him so far in the business too. Uh, people just instantly fell in love with him. And, and he was the guy that you could always count on. And so when I heard from, from Ann and Nancy Wilson after he passed away, I really started to understand what he meant to the people that he worked for. And um, I know they, they really miss him and, and felt awful about him passing away too soon. I was a little starstruck at that uh, interview. I tried not to be, but 
You know, you grow up listening to heart. One of the first songs I ever learned on the guitar was Barracuda. Oh, yeah. So when you get to meet somebody like Roger Fisher, who, you know, I don't know, as a, as a kid, I would, it's yeah. just, it's one of those things that's like, you don't think it's going to be a big deal. Kind of was for me, you know? Yeah. I grew up listening to this guy's music since I was probably four, five. My mom was into heart. She had a couple of albums. I grew up and, and went and bought a couple of their albums and I was a fan. I'm, I'm still a fan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- they are in their own ways, uh, icons from that era. And Roger's an icon for writing licks like the Barracuda lick or uh, Magic Man. And, um, you know, Michael is an icon for being the Magic Man. That's right. I mean, being the inspiration behind that song. And to hear them weave this story that dates back to the 1960s Mm -hmm. and all the way to the present and to actually go to their show and hear them play, uh, hear them. Um, I know Michael wasn't playing, but he was there producing and Roger was playing at this auditorium. But to hear Roger still at it in his, I don't know if he's late 60s, early 70s, but he's getting up there, but he still has this rock star energy. He does. Yeah. So it's, it's really cool to be able to see someone doing the thing for that long with the same intensity and energy as he was in, you know, smashing that guitar on stage in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, just that, that energy that is kind of infectious, but also a little bit scary too. You're like, this guy is intense. You know? And I think that's, that's what set creatives like Roger apart from other musicians back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, is um, their passion was to create. And it wasn't about making money. You know, yes, it was a little bit about the women (laughs) and and the lifestyle and the drugs and the alcohol at some point. But ultimately, the, the common thread for all of these icons in that world is their passion to create. Well, I like what Roger had to say about um, I think in the beginning he was talking about he wasn't confident enough and it took him a while to get his own confidence together uh, to become who he was, becoming himself as a person and becoming himself as a confident human being. Yeah, I, I think that's overcoming. I think that's what's great about any type of art form that, that people gravitate to. I think the art form itself can help people become who they were meant to be. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the impression that I got from Roger is that he was, he was a rock star, but there was a shell around him. And that the more he played, the more that shell came off and he became who he is today. When I started playing guitar, I became somewhat of a recluse and would just play, play, play all the time. And I lost some social skills and Mike would just always do the talking for me. And I became real dependent on that. And, uh, I had a real kind of inferiority complex because I wasn't the one who was in charge of my communication part of myself, you know, and, and I preferred not to be, I'd rather just sit and play guitar. (laughs) Uh, That was some real baggage that I had to confront. And that happened uh, when we were in heart and we were in New York city and we were supposed to do a, interview with Life Magazine. Life Magazine had been out of print for several years, and this was their debut new magazine coming out again, and Hart was featured in it. 
and we were supposed to go to this uh, big deal interview. But that morning was the morning I decided, you know, I'm going to become my own person now and I'm going to make my own choices. And my first choice is I'm not going to that interview. I'm going to go walk around New York City and start to be a man who faces his own uh, demons and fears and dragons. And one by one, I'm going to face every fear until I'm not fearful anymore. One thing that uh, was notable about the interview with Michael and Roger Fisher was that uh, it was a interview with two people at the same time and and you and I had never done that before Mm -mm. and didn't really know what those challenges would be and it turned out to be challenging for other reasons I don't think that the fact that there was two people being interviewed was that big of a deal but there was a lot going on in that space a Mm -hmm. lot of a lot of activity a lot of people coming in and out Um, they have a business where they're making whiskey and tea and they've got people delivering products throughout the whole interview. Um, and then we had you there trying to help me. I mean, you had questions of your own that you wanted answered. So you're whispering in my ear sometimes. And, and I think we, we got through that thing pretty well. And I, I've heard from some really good feedback from people who were fans of heart and really liked that interview. So I'm glad it came together pretty well. Me too. And we got, we got to see him. Uh, we got to see Roger the night before that interview up in Edmonds. Yeah. Do a solo show up there. And it was really good. Yeah. That made it a lot of fun to, to have that context of seeing him in action and not just going back through YouTube and seeing him on stage in 1975 or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have this recent experience of seeing him perform just as energetically and proficiently as he had, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, So that was, that was a lot of fun. And also to hear from Michael, who I think the reason he was called the magic man is he's a visionary. So his commentary and his perspective on the journey of heart starting in the late sixties, early seventies, and going all the way through today with Roger's solo career. I think it's, you, you cannot understand their story without Michael's perspective. And that's, I think Roger would probably agree with that. You know, they're, they're very close, tight knit brothers. And they experience this journey together. And everything they did creatively was together. So you can't just interview Roger and really understand that journey without talking to Michael. What I'd like to know from both of you, Mike and Roger, is whether at the time that you were creating this music, um, you knew. Is it just is it one of those moments where you just know this is a hit? And not only is this a hit, but this is going to be um legendary you have to back up even more than that to get to the knowing part for me because prior to calling roger and steve and telling them to move up with ann and i i had this like three-day experience where i was so excited about the, the idea for this band that i couldn't sleep and i was going to school you know at the university up there but I, all I could do was stay up all night designing equipment and working on a business plan and this and that sort of thing. And then when they did move up, that forced the issue of, well, am I going to do this or am I going to finish my education? It was like this huge thing for me to have to decide. And, and so 
it came to the point where one day I had to go one way or the other. And I went down and I stood next to the stream, same stream that's in Crazy on You. <laughs> and I stood by that stream and I just, this thing washed over me where I, I, I could see the future. I could see what was going to happen one way or the other. And what I saw in the path of our band was that it would be incredible. It would be so successful and so much fun. And I knew that it would work, and I knew how it would end. And I decided, well, it's worth doing. And that, for me, that knowing persisted and carried me through a lot of dark, <laughs> doubtful days. And I, I think what we learned from Michael is that his vision was an extreme long game. He, he didn't have a short-term vision like, all right, we gotta, we got to put this song out and we got to turn this into a, a gold or a platinum album. I mean, he was thinking like three, four moves ahead, every decision they were making. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then we talked to another iconic musician, Gerald Johnson from the Steve Miller Band, episode six. Gerald was so fun to get to know. Uh, what I loved about that interview was that I, I showed up at his house and I always try to schedule these interviews in the creative space or in the home of my guest. I think that they're more comfortable there. And when I see posters on the wall or a sculpture on the mantle or uh, an instrument sitting on a, on a stand, those are actually conversational prompts that really help the interview flow the way it should. And so when I walk in to see Gerald for the first time and meet him for the first time, he's got his bass, his bass amp, and he's, he's sitting there ready to go. And so he plugs in and the very first thing he's doing is playing not his old hits, the Joker and Abracadabra from Steve Miller Band, which are great songs, Oh yeah. but he's playing an original song and he's singing. And, um, and so I'm miking things up and I'm, you know, I'm wishing that you were there because you're such a pro with all of the, the audio stuff and, and, uh, trying to get this thing recorded properly to do it justice and really got to know him in a way. Again, like I, I feel like he's a friend of mine. And then he leaves me this wonderful review on iTunes afterwards. And, and those mean a lot to me, the, those reviews, especially from guests. Uh, but he left a very sweet written review. And um, I'll, I'll never forget uh, talking to him and, and getting to know his journey. And, and every musician we talk to seems to have, I mean, there are common threads, but they have very unique upbringings and influences and that's what i like to hear is like what what were your influences why did you go in that direction um but it's almost never i mean the common thread that i see is it's almost never like this master plan they don't like sketch it out when they're young and say all right this is what i'm going to do i'm 18 years old by the time i'm 25 i'm going to have my first gold record you know that type of thing they're very in the moment and whatever they're passionate about just seems to sort of guide them in a way. Wherever they're going to go, they go. But there, it, it doesn't seem to be the product of a master plan other than they fucking love what they do. Yes, absolutely. And they're not going to stop doing that. The thing that impressed me most about Gerald was the fact that he learned the bass the way he did, which was upside down. He's left-handed, but rather than stringing it left-handed, he learned it from the right-hand stringing, which is the total opposite of what you would learn an instrument. Right. And 
man, the guy is incredible. How did you find the bass guitar as your instrument? Interesting. Find it as my instrument. Nobody has really put that question to me in that, and with that kind of wrapper around it there, Brian. You know, I was in boarding school, and there was a kid from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, named Alfred Lucas. He had a Fender Precision. He had been playing bass a few years, and, um, and Fats Domino's son went to that same school. Antoine came in 66, and we knew that Alfred Lucas had a bass. So Antoine said, Gerald, why don't you go ask Alfred if we can borrow his bass? And I went, ask him if we can. I said, nobody wants to. He goes, just ask him. You know, I'm sure he'll let us use it. Sure enough, he said, go look under my bunk. You know, we're in a boarding school in Lafayette, Louisiana. Look under my bunk and be sure to put it back in the case when you're done. He said, sure. So I, I picked it up, and in a very short period of time, I had some kind of bond with that instrument that I was not looking for. The, the way it felt up against my chest, the way the wood vibrated. You know, I was 16. You know, I, I had not been exposed to any, I'd never even picked up an instrument that I can even remember and held it up close to me like that. And, and with some of these musicians like Gerald, um, there, there's a turning point in their career where they realize that drugs and alcohol are really hindering them artistically. And uh, it seems to be a crossroads that they face. And Gerald was one of those musicians where he just made a decision that he had to stop drinking and became sober. And I, I think was uh, pleasantly surprised that he was able to do it sober and not just do it, but actually perform better sober than he had ever performed intoxicated or while drinking. I had to change some of my habits so I could continue to do this. It was really difficult because it was something that hadn't been done in about 27 years. But it didn't take long to realize that it even felt better. There was a level of clarity that had been forgotten about. I think you're right, too. I think the ones that don't figure it out end up... Um, well, a lot of them aren't with us anymore. Right. You know? And then we talked to quite a character, B.J. Lederman. <laughs> uh, I did not expect the, uh, the adventure that he took me on when I flew to Asheville, North Carolina to meet him. Uh, but I'm very glad that I made the trip. And uh, we, we saw each other for the first time at a cafe that's where he wanted to meet. It's one of his favorite diners in Asheville, in the outskirts. And uh, got to know him and his girlfriend, and I brought my daughter along. And then we started the interview, not in a house, not in a studio, uh, but in the hills on a hike. Right, outdoors. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, that, was, that was very interesting because there were bears around, and I, I noticed that BJ had bear spray in his back pocket and was clapping his hands and yelling. And, and I was like, what is going to happen here? Are we going to have to fight a bear? Do what I usually do when I enter the woods. I'll say, walking here. Yeah, walking there. Yeah, walking here. Gone now, gone. And that basically gives them an idea of where the trouble is. He, he was just a lot of fun to hang out with. He's the type of guy that is pretty spontaneous and impromptu 
and he doesn't want to do things by the book. And I think that that's the way he's kind of lived his whole life. And, and then we heard from BJ sort of the origin story of how those NPR theme songs made their way into uh, everybody's musical consciousness back in the, the 70s and 80s. I had given my cassette tape of jingles, my jingle demo cassette, to my good friend, well, friends, Skip and Jerry Peasy. And uh, as Skip tells me, one day he went to his mailbox down there and there was a little piece of paper from the desk of Jim Russell, who was the new producer of Morning Edition. And uh, the piece of paper said, get me B.J. Lederman, underlined exclamation point. I think they just now switched over after like 40 years of using the BJ's theme songs. Wow. NPR uh, started using a new theme. And uh, even though BJ might not be a household name for everybody, I think his music, if you've ever listened to public radio. And so I, I really enjoyed getting to know BJ in his hometown of Asheville, which, by the way, is a really cool town. Yeah, Asheville is one of those towns that you know, there's, there's shirts that you can buy in shops that say, keep Asheville weird. <laughs> and it is, it's a weird town. There's all kinds of music going on, a lot of busking on the street corners. Nice. Uh, a lot of great restaurants, live music everywhere. It's a college town, gorgeous city, and a lot of creatives there, including BJ. And a real special interview we had was with Alfredo Aragin, which is episode eight. And Alfredo is a painter who has work in the Smithsonian. And I, I really didn't know a lot about the art world other than talking to Hibba Jamil. So that was my first guest, obviously, uh, episode two. I, I didn't really know a lot about the long game of the art world. And Alfredo has played the long game, for sure. Uh, he started off in the 1950s, I believe, in Mexico, and uh, has the keys to the city of Morelia. Uh, because of all of the, the good work that he's done down there. And he's, he's an ic iconic figure in Mexico and in, and in the United States. But to, to get to know Alfredo in his home in Seattle and see his many paintings on the walls of his home, but also to be taken down into his basement where he does his work and to see these incredible paintings, huge paintings that take up entire walls in progress weeks and weeks worth of work already on the canvas, weeks and weeks of work yet to be done on the canvas. Right. And to be pulled into that universe for that period of time, for the couple hours that I was with him, it's unforgettable. And I, I just am so grateful for that time with Alfredo and also to have that relationship and that connection result in the interview with Tess Gallagher, which we'll talk about later. But I really enjoyed getting, getting to know Alfredo. One similarity I did notice between Hibba and Alfredo, mm -hmm. even though they're, even though Hibba is a lot younger than Alfredo, and she has been at it a few years while Alfredo's been at it for decades. Right. Um, they both have the same approach to why they are doing what they're doing. And it's a, an extremely selfless approach to art, which is they want to make a positive impact on the world and they want, they want everybody to be able to see their art and enjoy it. And Alfredo uh, talks about that in his interview. I have my paintings in, um, in hospitals and retirement homes and things to inspire people. Yeah. And it makes me really happy that um, 
that art is not a way to be famous and rich, but it's a way to connect not only through your paintings, but spiritually uh, you make connections with people and real good friends. Very interesting story of, um, you know, Alfredo seemed to have not such a great childhood. We hear about that a lot with artists. His, his upbringing was not great. No, no. There's, uh, I think that conflict during childhood and adolescence is obviously not a good thing, but it does create a, a type of ambition and drive in artists that leads to success. And I think we see that in music and we see it in writing and, and we see it in painting. And the tie-in there is what I was getting at was that Hibba and him both kind of had similar. Right. And his was more of like neglect and abuse. Hers was more wartime, um, being in fear all the time, you know, living right. in that and kind of that influencing kind of their way of expressing it creatively. Right. Trauma, whether it's trauma from, from neglect or from living in a war zone, uh, that trauma is going to have an impact on your creative vision and the type of art that you create. And, uh, but the, the common denominator between these artists, as I see it, is that Hibba and, and Alfredo are not in it for the money. Right. They are not doing this to become millionaires, and they're not millionaires. They're struggling to make a living just like everybody else. And they may have good times and they'll have some bad times. It's an up and down, uh, it's an up and down world economically for artists, but that's not what matters to them. It, what matters is that they're able to create in their own way and do it their way. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks. And now back to the interview. Well, speaking of uh, artists that do what they do, not for the money, mm -hmm. but for the passion of creating in that space, uh, Greg Mariotti, episode nine. And this is one of my favorite episodes of all time. Mine too. Uh, because for a couple of reasons. One, Greg is my age and he was in the banking industry for 20 years before he left to work in film and not only work in film, but work for freaking Cameron Crowe. <laughs> I mean, talk about a, a film legend, Jerry Maguire and almost famous and all these, these great movies, great Fast, films, fast times at Ridgemont high. Um, but he took this leap of faith and left a very lucrative job in the banking industry to do something completely different. And I really connect with that, you know, being, being his age and also being someone who has wanted to make the leap myself. And that's actually why I created this whole podcast. If you listen to episode zero uh, or episode one, actually, they call it episode zero. But if you listen to episode one, the, really the whole purpose of me starting this podcast was sort of encapsulated in Greg Mariotti's story. So that's why I really appreciated that conversation with him. It's a great conversation. And to work on a documentary like the David Crosby documentary with Cameron Crowe and, of course, David frickin' Crosby, mm -hmm. uh, to be a part of that creative process, to be a producer on the movie, to get invited to Sundance Film Festival, 
and possibly to be nominated for an Academy Award is just jaw-droppingly amazing to me. And I, I try not to use that word amazing too much because I think it's overly used. But his journey, Greg's journey, is so impressive and, um, and inspiring. I think that's the one word that I would use to describe his, his interview, is inspiring. And I inspired, it inspired me. I hope it inspires others. I'd say documentaries in general are a labor of love. You've got to have a, a genuine passion for the subject matter. And I think you have to be willing to put a spin on it because there has been so many. You don't want to fall into the trap of just a bunch of talking heads commenting on an artist, a band. It just, it, it feels it feels like it's been done a lot. And so that was one thing that we tried really hard. People ask us all the time, like, why don't you have new interviews with, with Neil or with Steven or with Graham? Well, first of all, we didn't ask those guys to do interviews. Yeah, um, They might've said no if we would have asked, but that was never the plan. The plan was always to let Crosby tell us his story because why would you not want to lean on this guy who can tell amazing stories who has so much charisma, has so much honesty, and is such a great storyteller. So that's what that's what we tried to do with this film is really do that. Could you do that with every documentary? Probably not, because you have to have a subject matter that can weave those stories. And I think Crosby is sort of in a league of his own in terms of being able to do that. You had an encounter with David Crosby. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or you you approached him. Right. Yeah, 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 I, I did. Um, I should not have done that. <laughs> was he mad? Yeah, yeah, he should have been mad. Uh, I, I approached him in the middle of a conversation. He was at a dinner at uh, the Sundance Film Festival, and, and I was in there uh, as a guest, the artist at the table dinner, and he was talking to Robert Redford's daughter, Amy Redford, and I approached him asking for a picture like a fucking idiot. <laughs> and uh, and he treated me, you know, as he should have treated me, which is like an annoyance. <laughs> I, I I might take a picture, but right now I'm in a conversation, so get the fuck out of here, basically. Right. Um, he didn't use those words, but that's the impression you got, though. Yeah, yeah. So you know that th that's that that's actually a good lesson for me, because uh, some sometimes I am an approacher, sometimes I impose myself on stars when you know really the respectful thing to do is to treat them like a human being you know yeah. have some type of oddity you know that uh, they, they have to just stop whatever they're doing and and uh, give you whatever you're asking of them at the moment you know one person i i talked to that i felt was on a different wavelength than me creatively because of her energy level and just how hard she works was Bettina Gilloa. Oh, yeah. The level of productivity that she's at all day long and the intensity with which she approaches her work uh, w was really intimidating for me to hear. And I, I enjoy getting to know her, and she's actually a lovely person uh, and, and friendly and affable and just someone that you would want to go out to lunch with and have coffee with and, and, and probably mentor you. And she does mentor people. She's a, a screenwriting professor at Chapman University. But she is she operates at a very high level in terms of output. And she's just constantly working and thinking about the next project mm -hmm. and, and the current project. 
And that's the impression I, I got from Bettina, which is if you want to be successful in any industry, you're going to have a much better chance at success if you work your ass off. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one, one of the biggest lessons I took away from Bettina. And also her approach to story and storytelling was something that I'd never heard before, which is something she describes as story logic. I have something that I just call story logic that applies to life. I literally see that lives transpire in a way just like stories do. So in real life, I will have a friend ask me, you know, how does something terrible just happen? And what if this happens um, as a result? And I say, no, that's not going to happen because that's not the way the story goes. I, I can literally sort of predict. I say, you know, tell me the beginning and I can tell you the ending. I have a theory of there's an electromagnetic process to life. You know, we are energetic beings. And when we talk about people, we talk about them in terms of energy. They're energetic. They are powerful. They're in charge. Many, many words that we ascribe to human beings have to do with energy. And uh, I put this in one of my scripts. Electromagnetic energy works along magnetic poles. So you have this polarity, which is also part of story always. You always go from opposite to opposite. You start on one side, you have to end up on the other. That's how a story works. The most satisfying story will always end up on polar opposites. And in life and in story, what you pursue will run away. And what you run away from will pursue you. It's literally, that's the nature of all stories and life. And what I love about story logic is that you can look to your own life or to the lives of other people as something that either follows or doesn't follow traditional story logic. Right. And so if you look at story logic as a guide on how to tell a good story, you can look for the threads in people's lives that are going to make for a good story, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And so that's why I think she makes such a great biography storyteller. She's able to go into the lives of real people and find the essence of what they're all about or what their career was all about. And how is that going to resonate on film? And she just has a really special talent for that with, you know, the Bessie biopic on HBO, McFarlane USA with Kevin Costner and um, the Muscle Shoals documentary that she's putting together with Johnny Depp. Um, I think that's why she has found such a niche in that industry is that she's super talented at finding aspects of people's lives that are going to fit within that story logic that resonates on film and in books. Right. And two guests that we talked to back to back were Ricardo Fraser and Hollis Wongware. And Ricardo was the first guest that we talked to who was not a traditional artist, so, yeah. so to speak. Right. Um, he is a producer and a manager and had managed uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot for many years and still does, but also has a business where he promotes artists in kind of a unique way. And it, it was neat to hear uh, someone like Ricardo talk about the way he carved his own path. He was kind of a trailblazer in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, how he carved his own path. And he's, he's not a musician. You know, this guy is not a writer. He's not a musician. He's not a painter. But somehow he was able to be in that creative space by helping other artists become better and become successful. 
You know, what was interesting in, in terms of my path, and I, I go back to my dad being a musician back in Costa Rica, right? I have clear memories of sitting with him while he played. He's an amazing guitarist. Um, and I think the, the idea of music was built into me through his creative process and creative life. Um, and so I've always loved the arts, right? Even as I pursued a career as an environmental scientist. Um, and so the arts was always back here, right? And so while I pursued that, those earnings, I always dabbled <clears throat> in some form of fashion in the arts because I loved the idea of working in the, the, the arts, um, particularly in music. Um, I couldn't sing. Um, I can't play any instruments, right? But again, that love for, for music and the arts was just instilled in me from a young age. So I just kept trying to figure out how can I, what can I do? And through that connection to Ricardo Fraser, I was able to interview Hollis Wong Ware nice. in Los Angeles. And Hollis was kind enough to invite me into her home studio, her recording studio, to talk about her work with Macklemore and beyond. And her work with Macklemore resulted in a Grammy nomination on the Heist album, but also really helped her become well-known in the industry so that she is able to not have to have a day job, basically, and create. And that's what she does. She sings, she writes uh, music, she performs with Flavor Blue. She travels all over the world. If you follow her on Instagram, you can see her playing with Flavor Blue and other musical acts in Japan, Seattle, Los Angeles. And, and her story is really unique as well. I mean, you listen to her, uh, her TED Talk. Just look her up on YouTube. There's a TED Talk that she does where she talks about her, her journey and the influence of her mother and her mom's work ethic on, on her own musical journey and the spoken word poetry that she does. Um, really a neat person and someone I was, I was privileged to talk to. Originated from Seattle too, right? She started in San Francisco, but it really her, her roots are in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And that's how she, that's how she met Macklemore. And I, I found her story about helping him write the song White Walls was incredible. I mean, to hear the behind the scenes making of a song from scratch where you're you're in a cafe with Macklemore and he's got a, a notebook and a pen and she's sort of guiding him through the process of this story of the lyrics of White Walls and what that means to him. And then she, you know, she wrote the hook on that song and, and got to sing it on the album. And then that took her all the way to the, the Grammy Awards. I think it was in 2014. Uh, what a story she had. And one thing I try to do in these interviews is ask them to give advice to a room full of young people that are wanting to do what she does. Right. Or they're wanting to do something creative. And Hollis had a great answer to that question. You have to try a lot of stuff to know what most speaks to you. Um, and so don't ever inhibit your ability to grow or to experiment and to try. Um, and you can't wait around for permission to develop as a creative. Um, you can't wait around for somebody to give you like a smile and a nod and tell you to walk forward. Like the best way to go is to find that smile and your nod within yourself and to find that internal affirmation to believe that you're worthy of developing as a creative. So is, as much as I enjoy getting to know these artists, I also appreciate that they have a lot of wisdom to impart to my listeners, not just to me. 
but to uh, anybody who is looking to do uh, something creative and work in a creative space. I know I'm learning a lot just yeah. when I just by listening and yeah, doing the work. Another Los Angeles musician we spoke to who was in a completely different genre of music than Hollis Wong Ware was Richard Patrick. That was one of my favorites. Yeah. And hardest. To, to <laughs> what do you mean by that? What was so uh, difficult Just the about? editing of it. I mean, he's a, a very energetic guy, as you know. You were there, you know. Oh, yeah. There were times where he was very spoken, a very normal tone, and then there were some very excitable moments on there where he uh, <laughs> spoke a little loud, I yeah. suppose you could say. One might even say scream. Yes. Yeah, into the mic. And that's what made the interview so fun and unpredictable. And I think it's probably the most high-energy interview I've had. Right. One of the takeaways from the interview with Richard, for me, uh, was his perspective on artistic freedom. I went off and I did my own thing, and I fucking did it my way. You know, I did it. I did it on my terms. This entire past 30 years has been my, what I wanted to do. That's freedom. That's probably one of the most memorable quotes from any of these interviews is, you know, Richard's perspective on uh, doing things his way and the importance of that. Totally. Richard's a really special guy. I mean, he's in his, I think he's in his early fifties, but he is still performing high energy rock at concerts and recording, but he's also doing film scores. That's right. Yeah. So he's kind of broadened his horizons with the film score uh, business that he has. During episode 16, uh, we took a pretty dramatic turn from the interviews with the musicians in Los Angeles. Uh, episode 16 was actor Jerry Shea. You remember that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jerry was, uh, I think, the first interview that we had where we did it remotely via the internet. Internet, that's right. I was a little worried about our, my ability to connect with the guest without seeing them uh, in person, face-to-face, being in their creative space. But Jerry was great and uh, was really uh, generous to take time out of his shooting schedule uh, to talk to me about City on a Hill and uh, his experience working with those actors on that Showtime series, which I thought was great. Mm -hmm. I watched the entire series before our interview and also uh, watched his uh, Broadway musical Passion, which is a Stephen Sondheim musical, and uh, tried to get a sense of his work and really was impressed with the range that Jerry has, uh, starting with passion in the early 90s, singing incredibly challenging and complicated Stephen Sondheim songs for two hours on stage every single night on Broadway, and getting nominated for a Tony for that work, um, and then all the way through his film career, and then his retirement to focus on family, and then being brought out of retirement to work on Sitting on a Hill with Kevin Bacon, the Showtime series. He's very diverse. Yeah. And that was what impressed me the most too about he's he's a family guy. How difficult of a decision was that after being nominated for a Tony um and also being in, you know, being a film actor, I think you had just uh, acted in Southie by that point. Mm -hmm. It was it was a difficult one, but uh I, I it was a it seemed like a no-brainer to me. Um that said, you know, um in a way, I, in all candor, it's like cutting off a limb sometimes, but you know, you know, it has to happen. I, it, it still, as hard as it was to let this go, it was, it was an easy decision for me when I knew what the downside of it was. You know, if I have to choose between making a living doing something that I love uh, and being home with my wife and children, 
to me, it was just a simple one. And I have never regretted that. And Jerry told us about, you know, what it was like to, to work on Broadway uh, versus working on television versus film. And that was kind of a cool perspective to have. I don't think we had really had that type of discussion before on the podcast. We had this nude scene and we were getting into the bed on the set before the curtain rises and suddenly the curtain rises and the house lights are still up and everyone just looks up at us. I just wave to the, to the crowd, you know, and we just <laughs> turned and smiled at the crowd and say, see you in a few minutes. And the curtain eventually came back down. We started the show over again. You know, those things happen all the time in theater. And, and there are times in a run when you do something close to a year or even more sometimes where you, you, you welcome those things because it, it, sets the, it resets the tone uh, and, and it puts everybody on edge in a really wonderful way um, so that every night, it, it reminds you that every night needs to happen for the first time. After talking to Jerry Shea, we really took a 180-degree turn uh, when we talked to Dan Friday and to Dylan Newworth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dan Friday is a glass artist from Seattle who uh, works with uh, Dale Chihuly, who's a world premier glass blower and glass artist. Uh, and Dan has been doing this for, for two decades now working with Dale, but also really establishing himself as a unique voice in the glass space. I, I had never really looked at how glass art was made until talking to Dan Friday and going to the gallery and seeing his work and then going on YouTube and actually watching this process happen. Um, and then to hear Dan talk about how he got his start was also inspiring, kind of inspiring in a way that, that Greg Mariotti was, because Dan did not go to school to become an artist. And he became inspired to work with glass in a pretty unique way. I was 20 years old and I had gone to vocational tech school as a mechanic. I owned a tow truck. I was on this path to be a car gypsy of sorts or whatever that is. And, but the, when I saw the avenue of, of working with glass, being able to create things with my hands as opposed to fix it, you know, working on car, I just knew that's what I was going to do. And so that was, a, that was a great moment for me, I think. Dan's beginnings vocationally were working with his hands and he thought he was going to work with cars and be a mechanic or as he put it, a car gypsy. <laughs> but um, it turned out that his ability to think mechanically and work with his hands really helped him accomplish what he wanted to accomplish creatively. And I think that his, his ancestors and the, the creativity that ran through his bloodline basically really drove him into doing what he was meant to do, which was to be an artist in this, this space, which is inaccessible to a lot of people. But because of his ability to work with his hands and his understanding of, of glass and metal and heat and all of the elements that go into uh, making this type of art, he was able to take you know, what I think he was destined to do based upon his ancestry and his family history and actually execute and make that happen in the space of glass blowing. Amazing work. Yeah. And, and one friend of, of Dan's is Dylan Newworth. And how I met both Dan and Dylan was a friend of mine named Wilbur, uh, Wilbur Kelly, who has worked with Dale Chihuly for many years. But Dylan, who also worked with Dale, is not a glass blower and he's not a glass bender, but nope. he, he's, a, he's a neon artist. And uh, just like with Dan, I, I, I didn't know anything about neon other than there are neon signs out there. I made the mistake of calling one of Dylan's pieces a sign. 
Right. I remember and, that. <laughs> and I'll never make that mistake again because it isn't a sign. It, it's definitely a standalone piece of art that uh, Dylan had the vision to put together. And you know the way that he uses a team of people to almost like a rock band. I think Dan Friday talked about that. Right. He used that metaphor as well. You know, you have the uh, the drummer and the guitar player and the bass player, and everybody has to do their thing to make it sound right. Right. Same thing with um, glass blowing, and same thing with with uh, neon. There's a whole team of people that are behind the scenes making this happen. Right. And it was um, it was really cool to hear Dylan's story of what really inspired him to work with neon. Uh, but when I got you know sober, it was when the work became more personal. It was, I was started, I mean, I realized that I had this like huge cavern of radioactivity in me. Cause you know, I didn't, it wasn't like I just woke up and said, Hey, let's, let's party. I mean, it's kind of where I, how I grew up too, which is heavily linked to how I got into the medium of working with illuminated like neon. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that comes from how I grew up. I mean, I, I had this, I um, mean, I've told the story a million times, but it never is not resonating. Right. Right. Is, is that, you know, in, in my kitchen where I grew up, you know, my mom, she, you know, her second husband and, and, and that had sort of started dissolving and our dad wasn't in the mix. And, um, so we had, you know, my brother and my sister and my mom were living in this house and so like way out in the woods and stuff. And there was in the kitchen though, her second husband had given her a neon sign that said her name, Judy, but it said Judy's like, it's her place, but kind of like a bar. Yeah. You know? And that was in our kitchen. And then there was also a black and white TV in the corner and then under the, the, the sink in this cabinet, um, lit with like fluorescent lights was where she kept, you know, the bourbon, right? So, you know, at night she'd get home and she was an English professor and she worked in, you know, continuing education, you know, she's, she's brilliant. And, you know, she's really, she had the trashy book club, this kind of pro kind of like proto feminist kind of book club and all these like university women got together and drink wine, you know, talk about John Opdyke and, you know, stuff like that. So oh, this that's is cool. You know, cool household. Right. But at night, you know, she would, she was definitely, you know, had a drinking problem. And so she would, you know, do all the stuff and the responsibilities, but then she would, you know, invariably, you know, pass out. Right. Yeah. So I'd be up late at night and had that, you know, black and white TV. I turned on that sign because the transformer was under the stove, you know, on this side of the kitchen, turn mm -hmm. that sign on, which is like this red glow. And you had the TV with the, the, you know, the black and white watching like Blade Runner for the first time, which is not a black and white movie, <laughs> you know, Terminator, Robocop, like all this Late night. Futuristic stuff. Totally. Yeah. You know, which is in sci-fi. So it's, I'm just like able to escape into this world and then the light under the stove or the cab to the sink, you know, with the, the bourbon. Right. So it's kind of like this environment, you know. And, and so it took me like getting sober and just kind of like diving in like I had something to prove, which I probably did. You know, it was kind of like I'm, I'm proving I'm alive. I'm proving I'm like have wasted all this decade of time, you know, in this black hole. I've got something to say. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm I'm gonna keep saying it, and that you know I'm I'm not a piece of shit, and like also like hey I'm sorry to all these people. Like I think I've like let you all down in some way, and I've let myself down, right? Yeah. Um, but it took a while to really understand. I just was really recreating that room. Every single thing I did was kind of like this installation about something I was feeling impulsively inside to communicate. A very focal point neon piece and other kind of props if you will things and it just took me a long time to go oh wow you know that's that room it's so cool to hear artists talk about events in their life that may occur when they're five years old but that still reverberate in their psyche and their consciousness to this day mm -hmm. and it affects how they they view 
their work, and it affects how that creativity manifests. And after talking to Dylan, we, we kind of um, got back into film and talking to Tracy Rector, who is a Pacific Northwest film producer and director. And uh, Tracy is in kind of a unique space in film because she is not in Hollywood. She's doing documentary films about indigenous people and the issues that are specific to uh, indigenous people and the issues that indigenous folks face and have faced for decades. Yeah, yeah. And Tracy has produced over 400 films. It's amazing. Over the last couple of decades. And such a prolific filmmaker and artist and an, an important figure in the Seattle community uh, on all kinds of commissions and boards. And, and again, this is someone just like with Hibba, just like with Alfredo. These are people that are doing what they do. They're not for the money, but because it's important for our culture. And that's something that I have an immense amount of respect for, to not be driven by commerce and not be driven by the dollar. And I, I think what happens is when you are so passionate about your work and you're focusing on what's important, the money will come. You're, gonna, you're going to be compensated for what you do. Right. But it may not result in you getting an Academy Award, even though Tracy won an Emmy for her work on Donland. That's right. And she finally got, after all these decades, I think a pretty significant um, accolade, which is an Emmy. But that's not important to her either. I mean, of course, she appreciates being recognized in that forum, but that's not why she does it. No. That's not why anyone does this type of work. And, uh, and so it was a lot of fun to talk to Tracy. And, um, and after talking to Tracy in episode 24, we talked to Jeff Hamilton. That was a fun one. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff is uh, impressive for a lot of reasons, but what struck me about Jeff and the interview with him was that from the age of 12, Jeff has done nothing but music. And, and I, you know, you and I both were talking about this in our recap of, of Jeff's episode, parallels between his life and your life. Oh yeah. Are pretty amazing. Coincidental uh, for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. the fact that you both started recording at a very early age, doing multi-track, right. you know, kind of like, uh, you know, uh, primitive multi-track recording very primitive but doing it yourself like learning how to do this yourself right trial and error and he has been in the music industry for so long and has has been regarded by his peers as preeminent in his field in terms of audio recording for sure audio yeah. engineering uh to such a degree that he you know he's been brought on board to record violent femmes albums he toured with violent femmes for 10 years right he has played for Dennis DeYoung. Uh, he's played for Uriah Heep, Sly Guitar for them. Nice, yeah. And now he's about to go on tour with Metallica, which his mashup band. Which I love. Yeah. I absolutely love he's gonna Metallica. He's going to travel to uh, Montreal and to Moscow, Russia. But what an exciting life. And again, you know, these are not household names necessarily, but they're people that are doing what they love to do and they are successful. And they're making it happen. And I think that's inspirational in and of itself. I have a lot of respect for that. Me too. And finally, um, the, the last guest of the year, our special Christmas episode was with Tess Gallagher. She seems like a great lady. You know, Tess is a, a really special poet and short story writer to me uh, because 
and I, I talk about this, I won't go over it too much because um, I talk about it in the intro to her episode, what she means to me and why. Yeah. Uh, but, but being able to talk to Tess in her home in Port Angeles, not just one of her homes, but both of her houses in Port Angeles, and the second home being the home she shared with Ray Carver, one of my all-time favorite short story writers, uh, to, to hear her perspective on writing and creativity and the journey that she's been on and the journey she was on with Ray Carver uh, was really special. And I felt honored that she let me in to her world to talk about that. I know you talked about it, but you know, just being in that space, how did you feel? Did it feel like you're in this historical place with this energy that, you know, Ray Carver being, had been there and they lived together there. And well, yeah, she took me into her office, which was Ray Carver's office for, mm -hmm. for years when they lived there together and he died in that home. Wow. Um, but he, his office space was pretty well preserved the way it had been when he died. Uh, so his library was there, his framed pictures and awards were all over the walls. I'll put some pictures up on the website shortly that show how packed this house is with memories. I mean, there's just pictures on every wall. There's movie posters. There's the Birdman poster, which is the Michael Keaton movie that won an Oscar directed by Alejandro Inoritu. Yeah, good. And she, you know, Tess was brought in to consult on that film. It was based upon a short story by Ray Carver. There's pictures of Tess with uh, director Robert Altman when she was consulting on the movie Shortcuts with him. But to be in that house with all of those memories and all of that history, it felt like a privilege and an honor. And I, I'll never forget it. I really loved the poem she read too. Yeah. You know, and for her to take a poem that she had just written and read it on mic and to share that with me uh, was, was another special part of the interview. I mean, there's so many great parts. I mean, it, the, the one thing that I get self-conscious about sometimes is that I am geeking out over something that no one else is going to get excited about. <laughs> it's like, okay, who gets excited about a poet or a short story writer or an author of any kind? You know, I, I don't know, but I do. And the fact that she was able to, 25 years after I, I first met her at a reading at a bookstore in Bellingham, when she was reading from her book, The Lover of Horses, I, she didn't know who I was back then, but I became a huge fan after talking to her, having her sign my book, but the fact that she was able to invite me into her home 25 years later and, and share with me her life story. I mean, it's a fraction of her life story. It's a lot more rich and complex than we were able to put on mic in, in an hour's time. Sure. But, but that felt like a gift to me. And that's, those are the types of gifts that I, uh, I really appreciate and that kind of keep me going in the podcast world. And they make me want to continue doing this throughout 2020 and beyond. Right on. One of the interesting perspectives that she shared with us during the interview was how truth can be found more in fiction than in facts. That truth kind of gets lost in facts and it loses its meaning. But if you put it in the context of fiction, you can actually find more truth. Fiction arranges for something to be truer than, than factual. Facts uh, tend to be a kind of cement, you know. 
And uh, when you have cement, you, you don't have any prismatic understanding of, of whatever you're talking about, really. Uh, it's just, you know, there you have an imprint, maybe you might call it. Right. Fiction is very good, you know, because you have to uh, wrestle the snake, you know. And uh, I think I was just writing to Alejandro Gonzalez in Aritu uh, about fiction and saying that you can reach ultimate truths through fiction. Yeah. So, Jason, uh, I want to thank you for a great year. 2019 has been fun, challenging intense, exciting, so many words. I, I can't find the words to describe how much I appreciate you being my co-pilot on this journey. And uh, where we're at today is a result of a lot of hard work and creativity and passion. And I couldn't have done it without you. I appreciate that, Brian. Yeah. So uh, hopefully in 2020, we will be able to continue putting out episodes at the pace that we're putting them out now, which is once every two weeks, have a new guest, and every other week, have a recap of each one of those guests. Welcome to 2020, Brian. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time, and as always, go find your dream path.